You may be seated. We're in Matthew 5. We're continuing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount today, starting verse 33. Kind of like the last few weeks, this is not an easy one. Talking about oaths and promises, if you've got your Bibles, open them up for me, if you would. Chapter 5, verse 33. So it kind of starts out like this. Trust me, I promise. Really? I mean it. Seriously, I promise. Yeah, everybody knows that promises are made to be broken anyway. You're only as good as your word. Ah, it's not like I really meant it. I'm telling you the truth, I swear. I mean, I'll swear on the Bible if you want me to. That's what Jesus is talking about here today. We hear that word promise all the time. But I wonder how much it really means. We're going to take a look at what Jesus has to say about promises and oaths. And it's not anything but intended on his part. The promises and oaths follow immediately after lusting and divorce. And he puts those together because they're tied together in real life. And we know it. We've seen it. It's just simply reality, and Jesus doesn't shy away from that. So let's jump right into it. Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you've heard it said that uh, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. What he's talking about is teaching that they grew up with in the synagogue, that the rabbis and the Pharisees would have taught them, this is how you obey the law, this is what you do. What he's saying is, if you make a promise, don't take it lightly. If you're going to make a promise to someone, if you're going to take an oath, especially if you know you're going to break it, don't do it. Just keep it simple. Instead, do whatever you say you're going to do before God. If you make a promise and you take an oath and you say you're going to keep it, assume that you made that promise to God. Follow through on our promises. Man, our world's got a hard time with that. We we take our word, we take promises so lightly. He goes on in verse 34 and he says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. The teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, remember now, there's two groups of people that have gathered. He went away with his disciples, the twelve. And he started out teaching them the Beatitudes and saying, you know what, blessed are you when things get tough, is what it was all about, because things were going to get tough. And as they were there, this crowd was gathering around them, and they began listening. And so Jesus is speaking to his disciples, knowing this crowd is hearing. And what he's really doing here is he's shining a light on the falseness and the fake religiousness of the Pharisees. It's also, though, a clear calling to the disciples and the crowd that would listen. And, and folks, we've got to make the decision. You have to make this decision for yourself. Are you one of the disciples or are you in the crowd? Are you just hearing this or are you planning to live your life this way? It's a clear call to disciples that to be a Christian, this is how we should be living our life. He's using the Pharisees as an example. And what everybody understood was the Pharisees loved their laws. They loved all the rules and they loved the way that they could, they could point out every time somebody did something wrong and now here's the penalty, here's the price you have to pay. But what Jesus is reminding them of is their complete lack of love for people. They loved the law, they didn't love people. He, he's shining the light of truth on the darkness of this selfish agenda that they had to control the law and it was their own brand of, of religiosity. 
And there's a version of it that's still alive and well in the Christian church today. Some people love the law, but they don't very much love people. I see a lot of that in the church. And what we need to make sure is that we're on the right side of this one, that we understand what Jesus is calling us to be as Christians, not that we're comfortable in the crowd. See, because for Jesus, it's all about relationship, right? Everything about his life was about personal relationship between he and the people around him, between those people and each other, and between us and God. So today, Jesus highlights the commandment not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And all it means is that We shouldn't take any of God's names, and and the Bible gives us a lot of them. We shouldn't take any of those names in vain, in cursing or in profanity or in humor. Why? Because it's a sin. Why is it a sin? Because God is holy, and the names that we have for God are holy. God's name should be treated with love and respect. It shouldn't be thrown around as profanity. And so often this passage gets taught only as don't swear. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it, but it's so much more than that. And so on the, on the don't swear part, here's the thing. When it comes to taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up, okay? Don't do it, A, number one, most importantly because it's a sin and God told us not to. But number two, it just makes you sound not very smart. We sound kind of stupid when we run around taking the name of the Lord in vain. You know, why not get a thesaurus and come up with a word that actually makes the point rather than call out the name of someone you maybe don't even believe in as though that's going to somehow make your point stronger than it would otherwise. You know, we don't have to highlight our lack of intelligent vocabulary. We can just be quiet on the issue because your words matter. Your promises matter. And the way that you speak of and address and talk about God matters. And if the only way that people ever hear you utter God's name or Jesus' name is in vain and in a curse word, you are making a strong statement of what you actually believe and who you are. So in our world today, there's a time that happens quite a bit when this becomes an issue, and it's what Jesus is getting at. If you were ever to testify in a court of law, you would be brought in, you would ask to testify to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you. Right? Jesus says don't do that. The reason the court does that is there was a day in America where you might lie to the court on your own name, but you would never lie invoking God's name. No one would have thought about doing that. And so this promise gets made in front of the judge and the jury and the attorneys and the defendant and everyone else. That's exactly what Jesus is telling us not to do. In Hebrews 6, if you want to go to Hebrews 6, 16, Paul says this. He takes Jesus' teaching even further. He says, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all of their disputes, an oath is final confirmation. Like, I swear, I promise. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by unchangeable things, and that's God in which it is impossible for God to lie, he who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And what is that hope that God does not lie? When God makes a promise, God keeps it. The unchangeable character of his purpose So verse 37, Jesus goes on and he says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
The whole point of swearing on a Bible or swearing to tell the truth or swearing on somebody's grave is as though invoking that thing or that name has more merit than your word. And what Jesus says is be a person when you say yes, you mean it. And when you know, when you say no, you mean it. He couldn't make it any simpler than that. And if you need to convince people that you're telling the truth, if you need to swear or promise anything else, to be a person of your word, maybe what you need to do is to say, why do I feel the need to do that? Am I maybe not intending to keep that promise? See, there's this phrase, his word or his, his word or her word, it isn't worth the paper it's printed on. Is that true of you? What is your word worth? What do the people who know you know your word to be worth? If you say, yes, you will do something, if you make a promise that you're going to do something, do you follow through? See, God's word is printed on paper. We call it the Bible. Every word of God is printed on paper. And every single word of it is true. And what we know of God is that when God says yes and makes a promise, God keeps it. And when God says no, even if we don't like it, God will honor it. Because God is, God's word is of infinite value. Because God is 100% trustworthy. Because God is a promise keeper. And throughout all of history... We know that when God makes a promise, God keeps it. A few years ago, I had quite the eye-opening experience on promises. Didn't see it coming, didn't plan for it. Sermon example that I haven't forgotten. Here we go. My youngest daughter, Asta, was starting to play baseball. And she wasn't interested in playing softball at the time. She was interested in playing baseball. Well, the only baseball team was with the boys. And so she set out the way Asta does to be the best baseball player she could be. And she was really good, and she was doing a great job. And she asked me one day while I was at home working, she said, Hey, Dad, would you go out in the yard and play catch? I said, Yeah, let me just finish what I'm doing right here, and we'll, I'll go out and we'll play catch. I wanted her to be a good baseball player, only girl on the team. I wanted her to do well. And she goes, no, really, will you come out and play catch? I said, yeah, really, I will. I just I want to finish what I'm doing because I thought it was really important work stuff, you know. Dads, we get caught up in that sometimes. And she goes, no, seriously, will you come out and play catch? I said, seriously, I will. She goes, do you promise? I said, yeah, Asta, I promise. And I probably never even looked up at her when I said it. Yeah, Asta, I promise. And what came back from my young daughter was this. Dad, is that one of those promises that you're making just to get me to go away? Or is that a promise you actually plan to keep? Ouch. She would have only asked that question because I'd made other promises that I hadn't kept. Great sermon illustration. Great life lesson. If you say yes, do it. See, what we know is that God keeps... Every single promise that he makes to us. We don't even question it, even though we live in a world of broken promises. If I were to ask you the last ten promises that you had had people made to you, and and you could come up with ten of them, my guess is the vast majority of those ten had somehow or another gotten broken from the intent when they were first made. But we know God, and we know that God, if he even broke one promise, would no longer be God. His unchangeable character... And what we know about him, what we know about God, is that when he makes a promise, he keeps it. Because if God ever broke a promise, his credibility in your eyes would be shot. If there was one example in all of history that God hadn't kept his promise, you better believe that every person on earth would say, you know what, he, he broke that promise, he's not a promise keeper, he's a liar. That's what people would say. And you know, you know what? For all of history, for all the people that have wanted to say all the things about God, they've wanted to say the one thing they cannot say is that he does not keep his promises because he does. So think about that. Think, think about when you and I make a promise and then we break it. 
Usually we think about something like, well, it wasn't that big a deal. They didn't care that much. They'll forget about it sooner or later. But guess what? For, for God, if God were to have broken a promise, if God were to make a promise, nobody would forget about it. It would be remembered for all eternity. In fact, something else would happen. God would cease to be God. If ever once did he break a promise. How would you like to be under that kind of accountability? And yet that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. When you say yes, mean it. When you say no, mean it. Be a person of your word. He's not just talking about the promise that people make to each other when they get married. Because those get broken more often now than not in America, statistically. He's talking about even the little things like going to play catch with your kid. If you say you're going to do it, do it. He's talking about every kind of promise, big ones and small ones, maybe ones that don't matter so much to you, but maybe mean the world to whoever you make the promise to. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. The message Bible translates it this way. Don't say anything you don't mean. This counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only think you only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk saying, I'll pray for you. And never doing it or saying, God be with you and not meaning it. You don't make your words more true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate your words to get your own way, you go wrong. Promises are serious business because they get to the heart of who we really are. We can say anything that we want. But how we keep a promise and how we follow through gets to who we really are. We know that we can trust God and believe in his word as truth because God has a long history with every single one of us of keeping every single promise he's ever made. Think about how it is that you know God for a moment. You know God through what you have read in the Bible. You know God from what you hear on Sunday morning, from the songs that we sing. You know God from the testimonies and and the life witness of the people who you know who are Christians. But at the end of the day, do you know how you really know God? You know God as one who keeps his promises. You know God, you trust God, you believe in God, because what you believe if you are a Christian is you believe that God keeps every promise he makes. Our faith is is grounded, rooted in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, a promise that God made long before it happened and that God continues to keep in your life and in mine. So how are you doing? How are you doing making promises and keeping them, saying yes and it being yes and no and it being no? There was a song a while ago that got to the heart of this one. What if God was more like you and I? See, you and I, we're supposed to be daily growing in the likeness of Jesus. But what if God was actually more like us? That's a scary thought. What if only some of God's promises were true? What if God only said, you know, I'm going to keep 80% of them. You'll just have to figure out which ones. How would that change your life and your relationship to him? What if he kept his word to us only as often as we keep our word to him? What if he keeps the number of promises in your life that you keep the number of promises that you've made to him. What if some of them were real and some of them weren't? What if our sins weren't really forgiven? What if we may or may not be a new creation in Christ when we accept Jesus as our Savior? What if you actually could do something wrong 
that could separate you from the love of God. Promises are a big deal. They're a big part of what we know about each other. It is the foundation of who we know God to be. It's also the foundation of who we know ourselves to be. See, you can tell the world anything you want to. You can swear and promise and ask them to beg, beg them to believe that you're telling the truth. But at the end of the day, you know. You know who you are. You know what your word is worth. And if you don't think promises are a big deal, then maybe you need to ask yourself how important your word is in the world. See, in the world, our word is a big thing. Do you know how Pennsylvania, for example, got its name? A guy named William Penn. He was the, the founder of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And, and when they got there and they were just kind of beginning to settle the thing, the, the land up, uh, he and the Indians got along really well. He had tremendous respect for them and, and they for him. And they had a very, very good relationship, not something that was enjoyed through most of our country, through most of the years of the settling. One of the things that they told him as a, as a token of generosity and of friendship, they said, as much land as you can walk around in a day, you can have. We'll give you as a gift as much land as you can walk around in a gift. They, well, that was ridiculous because he figured there's no way in the world that they would possibly live up to that. And, and so what he did was he set out very early the next morning and he started walking a big circle. And he just walked, 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 walked all day long, came back very late the next night, very late that night, went the next day. And he said, all right, well, here's everything that I walked. When can I get my land? And they said, well, we made you a promise. So it's yours. They were shocked that he did it. He was shocked. That they kept their promise, but he believed them and he took them at their word. And now we have the city of Philadelphia to show for it. Because a group of people made a promise and a man took them seriously at their word and then they backed up and lived the promise out. There's a famous and very wise woman and poet named Maya Angelou. And Maya very famously said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. When, some, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Who you are, who I am, our words, our promises, our actions, they matter. They matter to the people around us. So who do you show people that you are? You know, we've got this, this world that's kind of an illusion. And we, we, think that it's, uh, we, we think that it's one thing when in fact it's actually something very, very different. Uh, it's called Facebook. I got a high school friend that posted something a while ago. He and I have fallen out of touch, but we're friends on Facebook. And um, he said something that I thought was really interesting. He said that one of the most interesting things that's happened in COVID is that I've learned who my friends really are through their Facebook posts. I can't tell you how disappointed I am. See, we got this idea that we can post things to Facebook, but it really isn't who we have to, who we have to be. It's it, like it lives in a different world. How about the ways that you spend your money and your time and, and where your attentions really go? That says a lot about who you are as well. How about that idea of our anchor? Where is your anchor fixed? Where is your hope in this life? What do you believe in? What do you find important? What are you willing to stand for? What promises are you willing to stake your life claim on? What promises are you willing to live for? Who does the world know you to be? What do your attitudes and conversations tell the world about who you are? See, we, we trust in all these promises of God. And, and we know that we can believe them because God will keep them and God makes good on every one of them. But what about our promises? The promises that we make to God and the promises that we make to each other. 
What are we telling the world about what's important to us? In the odd event that you've been living in a vacuum over the last three months, I'm going to clue you in. These are critical days that we're living in. They're quite unusual for us, but they're critical days. They are for our nation, and they're most certainly critical for us as Christians and for the church, the the bride of Christ that we have been called to care for. See, the fact is our world is more divided and polarized and separated than it's ever been. Our country, our nation, is more divided and polarized and separated than it's ever been. And the fact is that there's people and there's forces and agencies and parties and agendas that you and I simply are not fully well aware of. We're just not being told of everything that's going on. And we don't understand. And what they're doing is they're working their hardest to get us to fight. They're working their hardest to get us to separate, to divide, to find problems with each other and to stand against each other. Because if we can stand against each other, if, if somehow... We can find more reasons to fight than to get along if we can divide rather than unite. Somehow, we're weakened in all of that. And here's what I know. I know that Satan is behind all of it. I know that Satan is behind everything that we're seeing on the news and in the media. Yes, people have opinions and politicians have ideas. But you know what? Satan's the one behind it. Here's how I know that. Satan behind all of that because the Bible talks about what Satan does. Satan's behind the racial tension and the, and the disparity in our country. Satan is behind the political posturing and the lying and the treachery in our country. Satan is behind the notion that murdering unborn innocent children is somehow a human right. Satan is behind the idea that our skin color, our ethnicity, or our nation of origin makes some people more important and valuable than others. Satan is behind all of it. Yes, we're the ones who are perpetuating it. But Satan is behind it. And I know that because the very first introduction that we have to the very first people included him not very long after. And what Satan did was he didn't go to the man that God talked to. He went to the woman who he had the, God had the man talk to. And he went to her because when Satan went to the woman, he could do something. He could cause her to doubt what she knew and what she had believed her whole life since she'd been told it. And he could get her to begin to divide between she and her husband and them and God. And from the very beginning, the tool that Satan has used more than ever in history is the wedge. Satan is still dividing God's people today. Satan is dividing America today. And as Christians, we've got to come to agreement on some very, very simple things. We need to agree to stand on God's word, on his promises to us. Not on politics or opinions, not even the pressure to conform to whatever might be the the, uh, politically correct agenda of the day. Our only hope is in one thing, and that is in the good news of Jesus for you and for I as sinners. Jesus in learning to see the world and to love and to live like him. The only hope that this world has, the only hope that our country has, is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So please hear me clearly on this one. As long as I serve as the senior pastor of the Open Door Christian Church, we will not allow Satan a foothold in this place. That means there's going to be some tough things set up here. That means there's some things that we're not going to agree about. And he would like nothing more than for us to divide and disagree and to separate us because that weakens the church. But our job is to stand on God's word, not our opinions of God's word. 
We will stand on God's promises that are found in Scripture, not in the way that we want to interpret them, not in books that are written about them. We will stand on the promises that are found in God's Word. Our promise to you is clearly stated every Sunday morning before we gather for worship. We are going to preach the truth of God's Word because it's as relevant today as the days that it was written. We are going to be people of prayer because God cares about your life and He wants us to bring what's on our hearts to Him. And we will be people of worship because ultimately we will spend all of eternity as Christians in heaven worshiping. That message for 10 years without fail has started every Sunday morning. We will preach, we will teach, and we will proclaim the sovereign power of God's unfailing love and the eternal salvation that's offered to us in the person of God's only Son, Jesus, as the one and only thing that can save us from our sin, the one and only thing that can save us from the division that we cause and from the damage of our getting caught up in the snare of these deceptive traps that Satan is putting all over the place. And you know where it begins? It begins in our deeply seated desire as humans to insist that our way is the right way. And what you've heard me say here for years and years and years, I've never told a soul how to vote. I've never endorsed a political party. I've never spoken about a candidate. What I've said is if your politics don't come out of this book, you're making a mistake. Your politics had better be led by your faith. Your faith better better not follow behind whatever it is you want your politics to be. Because God has called us to be salt and light in this world. God has called us to be disciples of Jesus, not wedges in the body of the Christ driven into the church by Satan. That doesn't mean that people are Satan. Please hear me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Satan uses us. Just like he went to Eve, who had no reason to even know that he existed, and used her to drive a wedge. We make promises and we break promises, and our word in this world is only as good as the promises that we make and keep. And it's so easy to dismiss them. And what we need to realize is that God alone is the promise keeper. God alone is the light in the darkness. God alone is the answer to the problems and the division and the anger that's taken over America. What's the right response to racism? If Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, my guess is the right response is pretty simple. How about this? Jesus died for all. How about the right response to the murder of unborn children through abortion is that Jesus died so that we might live? How about the right response to the division that we're seeing in our country is Jesus who promised God's Holy Spirit who would come to earth and bring us all together in unity? How about the right response to your sin and mine is Jesus who died for our sins. Jesus is love and that is God's promise to us. That is God's promise for us. I read this once and I love it. We promise according to our hopes, and we perform according to our fears. Think about that. You make promises based on what you hope will be your good intentions. And then when reality sets in and you have to deliver, we start getting afraid of what the outcome might be. And we end up with a history of failed promises. That's why it's so important to live for Jesus, because when we live for Jesus, we are living in his promises to us, not in the promises that we make. Be a person of your word. Make your yes, yes, and your no, no. How about we do this as a church, as Christians? How about instead of promising to pray for people, we stop right there and we pray for them on the spot. How about instead of promising to be somebody's best friend, you just are someone's friend. How about instead of telling people that we love them, how about we act like we love them? Instead of saying how important people are, 
How about we live like they're important? How about instead of being people that fuel Satan's social media division, we work to bring unity in God's Holy Spirit to a nation that is literally dying in front of us? How about we do what we say? How about we actually act out of what we say that we believe? And we let our yes be yes and our no be no. And instead of just going to meet up with Jesus once a week in church, How about we bring Jesus to the world and we live and love and speak and act like him? In this world of ours, that's radical. For 2,000 years, that's been the most radical thing. A man or a woman who actually loves Jesus, who is a new creation because of what he's done for them, who goes out into the world and doesn't tell people what they think, but tells people who Jesus is, is radical. Actually living and loving and seeing the world the way that Jesus does is radical. You want to make a difference in the world? You're not going to change anybody's mind. I don't care if you write a newspaper article. You're not going to change their mind. You're certainly not going to do it the Facebook post. But you know what? If you set about your life and you commit to loving Jesus with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind, if you commit to loving people as much as you love yourself and as much as the ideas and opinions that are so important to you, and then if you commit to teaching people to love Jesus, we will change the world one person at a time. Isn't that what Jesus came for? Isn't that what the Holy Spirit does? Let's be those people. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your unfailing promises to us. Thank you that our relationship with you is rooted in our history, each one of us in a history of you being a truth teller and a promise keeper. But God, I have to imagine that for most of us, there are people out there all over the place that would call us liars, that would call us promise breakers, that would call us hypocrites. And they'd be right. God, help us to be people who love Jesus exactly for who he is, for what your word presents him to be. That love people the way that Jesus loves us. That live to teach people to love Jesus and are willing to talk about him. That we might be the one, one at a time, that change the world in a little way by making promises that we keep, by saying yes and meaning yes, by saying no and meaning no, and by loving people. Because for each and every one of us who know Jesus as our Savior, that all began because we know that your promise to love us through him was true and that we could trust us. Help us to be that kind of promise keepers. In Jesus' name, amen.